and Raising Rare, we are bringing you the story of a young father whose son has an ultra-rare disorder known as Sedegatian type spondial metaphysial dysplasia, or SSMD. My name is Kevin Fryert. Each episode, we will find out what is going on in the life of Sanath and his son, Raghav. We will talk about Raghav's growth and development, ongoing and upcoming research, and the challenges and adventures that raising a child with a nearly unknown condition brings. Come join us to hear the story unfold. Welcome back to Raising Rare. This week, we're going to talk about something that we haven't talked about very much. I know at my church, we only talk about budget and giving and things like that once a year. We try to limit that. So that's what we're going to talk about here is how much does it cost to have a rare disease kid in your house to take care of them, help them grow up, um, make sure they get all the medical care they need. So Sonneth, first, how's, how's Raghav doing and how are the grandparents doing? How's the family doing? Oh, we're all doing very good. I can say that finally we are all fully settled here in the Bay Area. So after uh, after a couple of months of moving and um, getting everything situated and getting Raghav all the doctors and care he needs, I think we've finally gotten to a point where we've gotten, I'd say, 95% of things done. So it's just a small ongoing a list of tasks that we have to get things done. But we're, we're, we're super happy to be here. And it's sunny, so I won't complain. And more power to you. Moving is just so disruptive. It just, it just shakes everything up. And everything you were used to as a habit goes away. And, you know, you have to find new places to, to grab fast food, all those things. Um, but today we're going to talk about, so, and this will, this will, enter into it, the move and, and all of that. What are some of the things that you guys have to pay for Raghav that most people probably don't have to pay for if their kids don't have a rare disease? We have to pay for his medical cost, which is probably one of the biggest costs that we have to pay for. And top, on, on top of that, we have to pay for care and adjustments and, um, and having even our grandparents here to help us out and you know we have to pay for any any uh, extra nursing care that we might we might need for him uh, eventually we have very specific types of equipments that we have at home that we have to pay for for him even the bed we're not thinking about getting a very specific type of bed that could potentially help him sleep better and all of those are many of them are not covered by insurance definitely my flight tickets for my parents are not covered by insurance <laughs> And even if it does, um, at the end of the day, it's still still a cost someone is paying for my son. I did this math. So what I did was I pulled um, insurance records for the last 32 months. This is since from the day Raga was born. And we realized we've spent over $700,000 in the last 32 months. That is a total of $21,000 per month since he was born. That's way more than what our salaries are combined. Thanks insurance that they've been taking the burden of, of paying for all of this, majority of this. But that is a number that I don't think um, my household could, just, could, could even pay for if it were to be out of pocket. Yeah, $21,000 a month. That's, 
just a number that 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 a family your age, young family, buying a home, things like that, you know, first homes, you're gonna pay what, three thousand, four thousand dollars a month, right? You're paying five times that plus your other expenses. You know, we'll get into your numbers a bit um, in a little bit. So I want to get into the Every Life Report. They did a survey to look at what does rare disease cost society. And when they did this survey, they had 1,360 households that responded, and that included 379 rare diseases. Out of the over 7,000, that's about 5% of the rare diseases. So whatever estimates they make here are very conservative, probably undershoot what it really costs. When they looked at how many people had those diseases, it was about 15 and a half million people were included in those 379 rare diseases. And the medical cost for that, for society, was $418 billion, which is another huge number, not to put down your 21,000 a month, but 418 billion for America. And that wasn't the scary number. To me, the scary number were the non-medical costs and the indirect costs. If you, if you lump those together, it's something like $548 million or billion dollars, billion with a B. And that includes things that are not medical, not covered by insurance, things like that. But then things like work, you know, time you have to take off of work, which they called absenteeism. And what they called presenteeism, which is you're at work, but you're thinking about your kid or what you're going to need to do, or your grandparents, your, your parents being there. That's an indirect cost. No insurance company is going to pay for that. As we've talked about, they're a critical part to your caring for Raghav. They make it possible, but those are the kinds of costs that come in indirect. So if you add all those things up, I think it's $967 billion per year for those 379 rare diseases. That's, that's, a, tri- that's a trillion dollars. It's a trillion dollars um, that, that it's costing us. And some of their you know, methodology really looks into costs that are, they have to estimate, like what is absenteeism? What is presenteeism? What are th- things that you're not doing in your community, therefore your community is somehow paying for it because you're not volunteering? And yeah, it gets out there and it gets, you know, economic theory and all that, but that's a big number. Even if they're off by 10%, it's a big number. Even if they're off by 50%, that's a huge number. (laughs) Yeah. Because remember I said, it's 5% of the roughly 7,000 rare diseases out there. Now it's not a one-to-one comparison there, but if you just took that, you know, that's 20 times that you'd have to multiply that by to, to get the real number. But those numbers are so big. It's like listening to, you know, politics when they're, or they're throwing trillion dollars around, like, like we talk about, should we go out to dinner or not? You know? Um, but the let's, let's, I can't even get my head around a trillion dollars. You know, you try to figure it out. How much would that be really? Well, one way we can do it is we can look at your household. So let's look at the Ramesh household and see what those costs are. Break down what you just talked about, um, how they are. So what and how do you even estimate 
Raghav's medical costs? So the medical costs are one thing that we don't have to estimate. Fortunately, since Raghav's birth, I'd been with the same company, with the same insurance providers, uh, with the same plan, because I was very afraid of changing insurance and, and something breaking. And so I have data to, to, to know exactly what his medical costs are going to be. Although I have no idea what the indirect costs and, and the non-medical costs that you talked about are, are going to be, because there is just no way of estimating. I would say that, that my family would be, would be very different um, and our, our lifestyle would be very different if it was not for Raghav. If you, if you factor in a lot, the what did you miss out cost, that's going to be huge. For one, we, we said we always need, like we always need an accessible house. Right. And so it took us a while to find an accessible house. It was probably a little bit more expensive. Um, and we end up having to make some sacrifices because of that. Far, we're living farther away. Um, you know, our commute gets longer and stuff like that. So there's quite a bit of cost associated with just buying an accessible house because you can't find them everywhere. Right. And when we moved here to the Bay Area, there were three apartment complexes um, in the 20 mile radius from Stanford, because we said we can't live too far away from Stanford, because if he needs an emergency room, we have to be there within the, within the half hour mark. Um, so there were basically three apartments that fell in within a reasonable budget. And all of them put together had probably five in total of three bedroom accessible houses. And there was one that was open. So we took that one. We basically didn't even have a choice on on um, how to how to how to make our spending, because we have a requirement that is so rare and still um, not 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 all easy to to get. And so that just gives you a, a perspective of of you know the indirect cost and and the decisions that we have to make. This one's hitting really close to home now. My daughter's looking for a house, and and she has these requirements, none of which is it needs to be accessible. And the one she's looking at, beautiful house, hits most of the requirements. I can guarantee it's not accessible. Even the first floor of it is not accessible. And you, you think about that and say, wow, if you ever needed it to be accessible, the modifications are going to cost you. Finding a different house, moving to a different house, which you guys actually did for other reasons, but, but moving your household completely for Ragav. Um, is just, you know, the costs are, like you said, you can't really identify them. You can identify them, but, but it's really hard to estimate because um, you don't know what else you would have done. Yeah. Yeah. And, and in fact, when you think of speaking of modification, uh, the house that we had in Bellevue, we, we ended up spending upwards of $50,000 to modify and make it accessible. So we did, we did spend quite a bit of money and, and, most, and most of the money went into making a bathroom work for Raghav. That's all it was. We just needed a bathroom where we can wheel his wheelchair in and, and have enough space for us to, you know, for him to take a bath. And that's pretty much all it took. And it costs a lot of money for that. And that's, that's indirect costs. Yeah, and you have to think forward too. So as he, as he grows... Accessibility today is one thing because he's still a little guy, a big little guy, but uh, you can still move him around. You know, you can, but as he gets older and will need, you know, a larger chair and something that you can roll a chair into a, a shower space and, 
and have space for you in there or, or, or someone to wash him and, and take care of him. Yeah. It's a totally different thought of what, what's a great bathroom, right? And very expensive, very expensive. This is where I, I knew we were going to get to. We'd start peeling away and you start saying, wow, that's a lot of stuff you have to think about and, and invest in now in order to have it workable in the future. I mean, you could even think if you are really good and you're like an architect, gee, can we have it so that the house can easily change later? You know, we're going to build this bathroom now because it's what we need. But then we just need to take out, you know, a little bit of this wall and it'll be different and, and it'll fix it. And, or we can put a wall here and it, it will give him what he needs. You're trying to predict the future there and it's really difficult and, and expensive it's, <laughs> to, to, to get someone to think ahead like that. Uh, contractors very expensive just just to give a, uh, just to give a, a little bit more detail on on the bathroom example I, I i remember this because i had a long debate with the with the contractor so we wanted a, a bathroom where we can wheel his chair into the bath uh, so it's a standing shower right we wanted to wheel him into the standing shower and we needed a curbless shower and that's apparently um just a just a door for the curbless shower was around 1500 bucks which is probably five or six times more than what a usual shower stall door would would cost and the cost of making the curbless shower is probably five or six times more because he, you have to make it with a certain um, structure so the water doesn't come out but at the same time you you don't have any obstruction into wheeling a chair into the shower so i just paid five times more premium just to get just to get nothing in that space for me to wheel a chair into Right, because they've got to grade the floor so that so that it's lower where the shower is, and that's not usually how you build a shower. You usually build up a little bit. Wow. Yeah, just practical things that that come into focus once you say, "How are we going to give our kid a shower?" <laughs> so let's talk about the the medical stuff. Pretty good breakdown that you were talking about before around where those things fit in what kind of surprised you or what stood out in when you looked at your medical bills so we spent overall seven hundred thousand dollars in medical costs in the last 32 months that's a three-fourth of a million and of that around four percent came um, in terms of medical equipment so Around thirty-seven thousand dollars is what we spent on medical equipment. This is um, uh, his his wheelchair, his stroller, his stander, his bath chair. Uh, this does not include um, his special car seat that we bought. Does not include any new cars that we buy in the future for accessibility and stuff like that. So this is just what insurance approves to be medically necessary for him to sustain and do his activities every day, and that's just. 4% of the entire expense. But I can tell you from experience that this has been one of the hardest to get insurance to pay for because this is not directly, I'm, he's not getting pill. He's not getting admitted to the hospital, right? And so insurance is always thinking, oh, does this person really need him? Um, need this wheelchair, for example. Uh, and then we have to get a lot of documentation to sustain that. We have to get a lot of doctor's approvals. And then just now, we, just yesterday, I got a mail 
saying insurance denied a claim for a bath chair that you've been having for eight months now. And I don't even know how much I don't even know how much the bath chair costs, but it's simply because the person that built the insurance said it was for family's convenience. <laughs> I'm like, if I don't have this bath chair, Raghav cannot take a bath. <laughs> Is that for family's convenience? And so this, these are these are some of the things that are you know the, the indirect costs that you talked about, right? Which is us spending the time on 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 talking to all of these people, coordinating all of that, and that's time taken away from work. That's time taken away from from us spending with Raghav to to just get to to just get them to pay for this four percent. Four percent. So they're they're fighting really hard for that four percent. They they don't want to pay it. Don't want to pay it. And. It can be argued that's what their job is. That's their their role in our healthcare system is to try to keep costs down by evaluating and arguing against costs that could be for family's convenience. I mean, I'm just picturing this, you know. Okay, so if we didn't have the bath chair, he'd just be laying on the shower floor. Really? But that's not what they're picturing. They're picturing everybody's using the bath chair and and it's just a, a luxury. Yeah. In no way, shape, or form is it a luxury, I'm sure. And, and, and typically what happens is when, when you have a condition that is very well known, say you have uh, a Duchenne muscular dystrophy, for example. It's, it's still a rare disease from a prevalence standpoint, but it's fairly well known. It has had a lot of uh, you know, popularity among biotech companies and stuff. And so there's, there's in the insurance community, there's a lot of understanding of the disease. Um, what, what they call an ICD code exists for it, which means there is a, a very clear way to know when a person has Duchenne muscular dystrophy and the insurance companies have quality of life data tied to the ICD code, which means they typically know that when you have this condition, you need A, B, and C, and D things, right? And then they would not negotiate with you for a wheelchair because kids with Duchenne muscular dystrophy cannot walk beyond a certain age. Yeah. So we just touched on something there. There's this whole coding system that runs insurance and fr frankly, it runs clinical trials as well. So when you're talking about diseases in a clinical trial and ICD 10, which means it's a 10th version of this dictionary of terms, if you've got a code in there, then it gets, it gets picked up very easily. If you don't have a code, you're in the other or miscellaneous code, and that leaves it all up to judgment. So I can remember, I'm not sure it was Duchenne muscular dystrophy or another one. I can remember them like celebrating getting their ICD code because this changed life. It changed all those arguments you have with the insurance company because you'd say it's in the code. And no one knows what those codes are except insurance people and clinical trialists and parents of kids with rare disease because they need to know the, what's in there so that they can just say, point to it and say, this is covered, this is covered, this is covered. Amazing when you think about that. And I don't even know what it takes to get an ICD code. I would think for, for Raghav's condition, you know, one of less than 10 in the world it's really difficult to get an ICD code. There's just no, there's no knowledge base for people to tap into to say, this is what you're going to need. They don't know. Yeah, it's not easy to get an ICD code at all. There is a lot of data you need. Uh, there's a big process. And I know 
another disease recently got their ICD code, and they uh, one of the one of the persons in the community wrote a blog post uh, explaining all of their process. And I can tell you, I, if even if I am super motivated, I I don't even think I have enough data to to go ask for an ICD code at this point. Um, so, yeah, it's not going to happen. For me. So, what were some of the other medical costs? We talked about the four percent, <laughs> which is the the smallest chunk. As difficult as it is to get approval for that payment, but what? How do you, the rest of it break down? Well, we talked about one of the smallest costs. Let's talk about one of the biggest costs. Sixty-six percent went into hospital facilities and admissions. Um, so that's four hundred and sixty-six thousand dollars over the last thirty-two months was paid for primarily to the Seattle Children's Hospital for hospital admissions. This does not include any direct any cost to the to the providers themselves. They are completely separate. This is only for hospital stay, procedures, admissions, and so on and so forth. Or, and I think it also includes emergency rooms. That's sixty six percent of the cost, and that's four hundred and sixty six thousand dollars. I don't even think I have I have the ability to pay any of this out of pocket. Yeah, that's that's just a number that's out of reach. Um, it just and. You know, if you listen back to all our episodes and all the times that, that you've talked about that you were in the hospital, either in emergency care or for surgeries or for treatments, yeah, the the hospital cost of that with not the providers, not the doctors, not not the maybe the nurses are factored in there, maybe pharmacists, things like that, therapists are factored in, but probably those are a separate cost beyond that. But that's a huge amount. And so I know the Everlife Foundation was looking at annual costs and you're looking at 32 months. So, you know, a little over two and a half years, but those costs that you just talked about way outstrip the averages that, that Everlife was talking about. You are on the far end of, of, of costs for medical costs, just with those two that you showed us. And that only gets us to 70% of your medical costs. Yeah, I've got more. And, and in fact, uh, on an ongoing basis, every month, I, Raghav needs um, his his food, his his medical supplies uh, at home that we need, and his his food is is all special. Uh, it all comes through the home care, and in the last thirty two months, we've spent seventeen percent or one hundred and twenty thousand dollars in just like food and his his in home medical supplies. And you can think of this as as um, as stuff that that is that is not durable. Right, um, it's all consumed. It's all just consumption, um, and so all of this is just Raghav's food. And is the food covered? Fortunately, yes. Yeah, because I know in some other conditions it's not, and and people end up, you know, trying to find ways to get it covered and lobbying to get it covered in different states. Um, it's good that it's covered though, because it's not. <laughs> this isn't your typical baby food. This isn't your typical you know, any food, this is specialized food that goes through a G tube that has to be treated a special way and has to be super nutritious. It has to be just what he needs. Um, there, there's no junk food in, in medical food. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and, in the, in the bag that we have that just connects to his G tube to take the, the liquid food and, and push it into the G tube, just a bag, um, if we use one bag a day, and that costs five dollars a bag, and that's throw throwaway. It's like a plastic bag. That's all it is. 
and it's if we throw it away every day and cost five dollars and because it's special wow so if, if we were to pay out of pocket any of this we just actually ended up buying um, a month's worth of bag because we we burned through a few more accidentally insurance wouldn't give you anything more than one bag a day and we bought we just bought a little bit more and it is super expensive and so just the home care supplies some of them i can even i can hopefully buy on amazon but i would say 90 percent of the food bags equipments that we need for every everyday activities everyday feeding i cannot even get it on uh, a store i have to go through a specialized medical provider to get to get any of these so it's just these little things that add up and all parents could go through and like add up things it's just you you've got like a multiplier on here you know yeah everybody has to have a lunch bag for their kids but it's not five bucks a day it's pennies a day um but it's just and that's a very unfair comparison but it's it's the kind of thing that you say yeah these things just keep adding up one thing i wanted to ask you about was the i know he's had some experimental treatments is that being covered by your insurance? Is that being paid for someone else? Or are you paying for that? Yeah, that's a good question. So for the retrotope treatment that he's on, um, the company is fortunately covering the cost. And they've been gracious to be gracious enough to be able to cover the cost. So we've not paid for any of that. We've only paid for or the insurance has paid for some of the lab work that we have done as as like testing for follow-up. But otherwise, um, we've not done any of the, we've not paid any for the experimental medication. Um, now we, in, we are in the process of evaluating another medication that we could potentially repurpose for Raghav's condition. And um, that's an approved drug, which means insurance will not cover the medication. The company will not cover it. And it is on us to, to pay for it. I don't even know what, what that is going to look like, but... Well, I guess once we get more details, we can talk about it, but I can tell you it's not going to be fun. Well, and it's, it opens up another little break in our healthcare system. So in your situation, repurposed drugs are the way you're going to go. There are no drugs that are, you know, uh, approved for your son. They're just, they're just, they don't exist. And everything that he takes will be off label. And insurance companies do not pay the off-label. And most companies aren't going to step up and say, oh, we'll give you the off-label. I'd keep working on them here because this is a different situation. You know, just like Retrotope has gotten some good press from doing things like that. Other companies understand. We're talking about a family here that probably can't pick up the cost that insurance companies are actually, they're okay to pay with because it makes sense for them business-wise to pay what they pay. Yeah, it's, it's a broken piece of our system where repurposed drugs, off-label drugs, kind of fall through the cracks and, and land on people. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, if you think about this, right, if, if we can show to the insurance providers that trying this off-label drug could reduce the chance of hospital admissions by 30%, that's 30% reduction in this $466,000 cost that I talked about, right? That's small. That's probably a, a whole lot, lot more savings than the cost of the drug and the insurance company would pay for it. But now the problem is I don't have any way of proving this to them. We don't have data. We don't have a clinical trial. 
Uh, we will never have a clinical trial. We have only one patient on this drug, and we will never have the data to to tell anybody that this is how it will. Uh, this is how much it will reduce your cost. So, what do we do? Yeah, there's only so much you can take the the common sense hypothetical there, um, because you can't. You don't know what's going to happen if you don't have the drug, and they're going to always lean on that and say, "But we don't. We don't know what this really saved us." Right. And the insurance companies could even argue the opposite, which is, oh yeah, you took this experimental medication and then you had these complications. Who's going to be paying for the hospital admissions of the complications? Right. Fair argument. It's a fair argument. And it's, I think it's one of the things that the people may miss is that every stakeholder in this whole system has a fair argument. The, the one that's the smallest voice and has the least, you know, uh, power in this is the family, the patient. They're, they're the most important piece of it because the rest of it dissolves if there's no families or patients involved, but, but they really don't have the tools or the leverage to argue against those arguments. Um, and as you say, in this case, there is no tool. You, you can't, you can't imagine a future and compare it to the real outcome. Anything else that's a healthcare item that you think of that's that's not covered that you thought would have been? There were a lot of those, but I will I will not get into those. Um, but I, I do want to get into two other. We hope that our conversation so far has made you think more about the costs of raising a rare child. Next time, we will continue our conversation with some of the unseen and underappreciated indirect costs that Sanath and Ramya must bear. Raising Rare is produced by Salem Oaks, empowering patients and caregivers to shape the future of medicine. CureGPX4.org is dedicated to finding a treatment and cure for SSMD. You can donate to CureGPX4 on the Raising Rare podcast page or at CureGPX4.org. You can continue to follow Raga's story next time on Raising Rare. <laughs>